I want to normalize like sexy men as the selling point of dishware and and dish. Uh, you, know. you mean like Mister Clean? Yeah, but like, yeah. but you call him Mister Clean's one thing. We call him Scrub Daddy. Is the well, whole Scrub Daddy other. should be a side <laughs> brand of Mister? Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, it's the after hours, Mister Clean. Scotch. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 394 of Coffee with Butterscotch, the game dev comedy podcast of Butterscotch shenanigans. I'm Seth and I'm the games programmer. I'm Adam and I'm the webs programmer. I'm Sam and I'm the artist. And this is a show where we talk about life, business, and working in the games industry. Today is December 14th, 2020 U. And before we get started, we have a warning. There's going to be profanity on this show. Yeah. were you going to say something, Adam? No, I, I wasn't. I, I just, I, I was like, it. my mouth is about to just start moving. And then I saw you, I saw you just like put the, put the clamp on it. You're like, no, yeah, you're not squeaking I through can, this profanity. I tell you, you were about to just launch into a volley of cursing. And I was like, let me, let me stop you right there. We got to get this warning out. It's good. Uh, We'd also like to thank our supporters over at moneygrab.bscotch.net, whose monthly donations help to keep the podcast running. So thank you very much for that. Uh, we got a lot to talk about this week. A lot. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Starting with, uh, I guess, sequins. Yeah. I got a life story. So let's let's get into this. I got a life yarn to unspool for you. So okay. the other day, Diana was sitting down at the kitchen counter and she's working on an art project that involves some sequins. So if you're not familiar, sequins are just giant pieces of glitter, essentially. Yeah. I was also going to describe them as giant glitter. Yeah. So giant glitter that has a hole in it so you can, you know, you can put it on stuff. And uh, sew it on stuff, I suppose, or glue it or whatever. So she's working on these things and she says, hey, hey, you might go over here looking at this real quick. And arrayed on the counter in front of her are a couple of these open sequins boxes, which look oh, like no. clamshells that are full of sequins, the bottom, you know, bottom parts full of sequins. And then she's got like two or three of them open. So I walk mm-hmm. over and I'm looking at the thing and, and I make a hand gesture. Yeah, but I, knew, I, knew, just, I knew this I was knew. <laughs> probably just because it's a clamshell. So I just sort of backflip oh, yeah, catapult over there. Yeah. Yeah, sequins just go exploding into the sky, okay? Did you and hit all just, three of the sequin clamshells or just one? <laughs> no, 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 just, just the one. Okay. And, you know, I'm immediately like, <laughs> damn it, because Diana has frequently referred to my hands as dad hands when it comes to, like, making improper, like, errors on my phone or whatever, you know? Your thumbs are too mm-hmm. big to properly type on a touch screen. Mm, and yeah. that's recently been extended to any sort of, basically, non-dexterous clumsiness is dad hands. I think mom hands are sort of the inverse where they're flame proof and uh, like that sort of, you know. That they can of, protect anyone from anything. Yeah. So Although dad hands can catch babies that are flying off of something. Yes. They, just like a, instantaneously. Different skills. Yeah. It's yeah. so. <laughs> I've seen it. Yeah. So, you know, after I do the sweeping gesture, shoot these sequins all over the place, which I don't know who designed this container to be perfectly catapultable, but, but there it is. I reach over and I'm like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I reach over and start oh no. uh, gathering the backup. And I go to put some of the ones I just got back into the little clamshell thing. And I knock over another one and then <laughs> shoot them again. And she's just like, oh my God. <laughs> Can you just go? And I was like, just, I, I'm trying to help. Let me help. And she's like, don't, don't even. Don't help anymore. You're Mr. Magooing yeah. all over these. It felt like an infomercial scene. You know, like those ones where you're suddenly <laughs> so clumsy that it's like, how? It's not that I didn't see them. I, I could see them. I, I the feel like, though, I feel like if you've got something like glitter or sequins, then the kind of container that they're in yes. should not have 
have le- a leverage point that makes it so Absolutely. that a slight move just flips the whole container. They should be as low profile as possible. I do like this a, is just why a screw cap that you take off a and screw set cap. Aside. Not, not, a, not, yeah, not like a snapping cap that you have to like pop off because then, of course, glitter yep. is it 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 a gentle screw unscrewing cap. that you can then set the cap to the side. Yeah, who did low this? profile. Who did yeah. Satan design these sequins? What is well, this? this is why you need neurodivergent people in the design room, you know, because people who don't have ADHD, you know, are probably a lot less likely to fling their hands into <laughs> an open clamshell, right? <laughs> But if you bring in just people with ADHD, you're like, let's, you know, let's have them be part of the design process. Cause like, I would look at that instantly and be like, I'm going to knock that I'm over. A, I'm going to flip that over. Yeah. Where that's going. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, this is why, uh, this is why diversity is important, you know, when you're doing stuff because you got to see things from all lenses. Yeah. I mean, it would be better for everybody if it was a screw cap. I'm just saying. Like, yeah. If you're designing something that needs to be contained and that if spilled will sort of erupt into a Although, very- Although screw caps have their own, you know, con- cause I, so I was, I was holding my- my littlest cat, because she likes to be picked up and put on a shoulder, you know. So I was, I was one hand removed while I was holding onto her, but I needed to get her pills out of of the, you know, the pill container with the childproof safety cap. And so I was like, whatever, I'm strong enough, probably. So I just like used my right hand and held onto it and pulled the cap down and turned it. And I was like, oh yeah, I got it right. But then I like tried to lift it off and it didn't come off. So I was like, oh fuck, I guess, mm. guess I fucked it up. So I flipped it upside down. I was like, I'm gonna push it, like push it down and turn it, you know. But it turned out it actually was open. There's just because it just like holds it a little bit, you know. <laughs> so that I just dealt pills everywhere. <laughs> so you basically you opened it and then yeah. just turned it upside down. Yeah, I, did, I didn't think it was open because it was still like kind of jiggly instead of like actually coming off. You know? It reminds me of if you like you know if you could open a protein shake or something and then like you go you actually realize you need to shake it, put the cap back on, but you don't put the cap back on. All the way, you, know? <laughs> you just fucking just shoot. Whatever that liquid is inside. I did that with a chocolate milk container in <laughs> yeah. middle school or high school where but I didn't even I didn't even close it. I just like thought I had closed it. <laughs> and I just started shaking it. And just fire hosing chocolate milk all over your classmates. Now you know that you know that saying about like, you know, don't don't mistake incompetence for maliciousness. Yeah. Yep. You know, but like they're oftentimes hard to distinguish. Oh, yeah. Uh, I feel like that maybe also applies to like clumsiness and just bad decision making, you know, mm-hmm. because it's like, like Sam, I wouldn't describe you as clumsy. No, but I'm not somehow you clumsy. always end up <laughs> covered in peanut butter or, <laughs> or something. It's right? true. But it's, and it's because you've, oftentimes will create a situation for yourself. Like, oh, I was like putting peanut butter on this thing. So I, then I just precariously balanced this, this like peanut butter knife on the edge of this thing that I was about to interact with. And then you, you know, punch it, karate chop, flip it into your face. So it's like, once you've set up a precarious enough situation for yourself, then it doesn't matter whether you're clumsy or not. Shit's going down. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah I don't think I'm clumsy. <laughs> I think I'm like self self-trapping, you know, like you just sort of, I'm just constantly creating booby traps myself, which to be fair, I've gotten much better at as I've gotten older. Like I literally notice now. You're uh, like, well, I'm, I'm about to trap myself. <laughs> yeah. And Diana's gotten really good at it because of course she's also, she's been around for just a lot of these. So we were putting up a, a little like wreath decoration thing. It's like a little banister, you know, garden. Oh yeah, whatever. that thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That thing, the, yeah. the thing that the, you wrap. The banister wrap you do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I was drinking a cup of coffee and then I just set the coffee. So I'm on the other side of the staircase uh, and I reach through and just put the coffee, you know, on the other side and, and we're kind of wrangling this thing. And then just looks at me for a sec and then she looks down. She's like, you're going to need to move your coffee. And I was like, <laughs> I, I forgot that it was there because, of course, I put it like through the step 
I couldn't see it anymore. Yep. Because of course, if as soon as that garland comes down, it's just going to hit that coffee and just shoot it all over the place, which was which is accurate because it did fall about you know a minute later. Yeah, so actually, I I think there's I must have trained myself over time to to kind of like to avoid those scenarios. Yeah, I'm getting better. But in, in like in a in like this weird like kind of deep way that must have been informed by just fucking things up enough, you know. But because mm-hmm. I I'd actually noticed this week when I was like I moved to our kitchen island to start prepping something, and there was some other stuff there. But it was like I had a like it wasn't in the way actually, right? Mm-hmm. But I felt really room. uncomfortable, and so I just pushed it all even further away. <laughs> but it wasn't like it just it just felt bad, you know, that it was that that it was there. It's a signal, yeah. And I was like, I wonder is. if this is something that like I've just like internalized over time, some kind of like this emotional reaction to like when I'm about precarious. to work in a space that there's a precariousness, you know? Yeah, I think that's why I really I don't do well with clutter. Actually, weirdly enough, I'm very oh God, very yeah, organized and very tidy. I'm not organized. I just throw everything away. Yeah, I'm sort of a it's a medium on the organized, but very tidy. And so it's like I just don't have things around because they because they're that's, traps. That's how traps happen. Yeah, it's your because every the more things you have, the more likely you're going to end up like an infomercial person where you're just like tangled up in a blanket with like a frying pan shooting sequence the, the background. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Cause that's yeah. just, uh, that's just, well, I guess Diana's now going to have to chalk this one up in her, in her brain of like, okay, clamshell types of containers. That's another <laughs> trap. Mm-hmm. So now she can be on the lookout for that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Hope, yeah. Things that activity. are catapult shaped. You know, just uh, yeah. I don't just who's building those. Don't. Yeah. Which honestly, this is how I feel about wine glasses. Like, oh yeah. What is? Oh yeah. What? I know, what is this? Well, you can line. get the ones that's just like stemless, right? Where it's literally just like the top part of a wine glass. It's like yeah, that's, give me that's that. what I use. Yeah. But the whole but point why are you because you're supposed to not heat up the wine with your hand. I just don't believe it matters enough. You know. I mean, it I definitely just, doesn't because whenever they do taste tests. Wine Nobody can really tell. Part. But yeah, and also like who's who's just like full gripping the the stem. You know, people still hold yeah, the bottom. Still, yeah, of the, exactly. Yeah, no yeah, So, like, stuff. come on. That's or true. how about this? How about this? Here's a wild idea: mugs, mug mm-hmm. wine. Better handles. Just put wine in a mug Unimatic. because it's got a handle and it's insulated, so it'll retain its temperature. We're about to get the most hate mail from people that we've ever. Received. Wine in a mug it makes the most sense out of anything <laughs> I've heard of all day. I don't disagree. I don't disagree. I basically, <laughs> I just got some essentially stemless wine glasses, but they're kind of smaller that uh, that I just use for. Every drink except for hot ones because the you know it's not insulated well enough for that. Yeah. But because you don't have a handle, like a a handle yeah. And I you know I got yeah. mugs for hot stuff, right? <laughs> but like but for literally everything else, it's just basically a stemless wine glass. Because they're also there's something satisfying about that shape, like it's good shape curves in at the top, you know. Mm-hmm. And if it's small enough so you can hold it really easily and nicely, you know, then you just I don't know. There's something really good about it. And it's cleaning though. Don't yeah. knock them over. Well, yeah, these because yeah, as long as it's big enough that you can clean it too, yeah. which is because actually these ones are pretty short, so I don't need to have to like reach my hand and I can just like you know. Yeah, no, it. I don't trust it because last the last stemless wine glass I had when I was cleaning it, it just exploded again. Who knows? I don't think that was what this, trapped this stemless wine glass say, aspect. I think it was just the handling glass. Listen, I'm gonna you know? do. A, I'm gonna engage in a little bit of victim blaming on this uh, on this wine glass because. Sure, yeah. mm-hmm. Because I can't possibly have been responsible. I mean, obviously, given my history, there's no way that, you know, yep. this is my fault. It's dexterous. It does seem unlikely. Absolutely dexterous. So swooping this thing and then it just shattered. And this, that shape makes it so that if the glass shatters while you're washing it, then it will cut you because you're sort of, you're in motion and the shape tapers in, right? So there's no mm-hmm. way like you're going to sort of move in. Your hand is glass. in a glass Globe exactly, and so it's it yeah. scooped out a piece of my pinky, which was not enjoyable. Whoa. So I don't really do those 
anymore. Again, probably just a how hard are you scrubbing this thing? That was the thing. I, I don't mean, recall it being particularly feisty. I think both of yeah, you guys. Well, let me, ask you, like, let me ask you this: you just have outside strength, so you just don't realize how <laughs> intense. Yeah. That's true. That's here's a here's a question for you, Sam. Mm-hmm. How many mugs have you shattered while washing them? I used to probably a lot. Probably not. Oh, well, you I shattered just, mugs. <laughs> Not the mug. No, no, no. I have shattered mugs. That's what I thought. But I've shattered mugs. Mugs are glasses. thick. Yeah, yeah. Normalized mugs for every beverage. That's that's the train that I'm uh, on. What kind of I'm a sponge you. are you using? Are you using a soft sponge or a scrubby sponge? This is just a soft, you know, dishwasher. See, that's the problem. Because it makes you feel like you got to push hard. You got to get get a scrub daddy. A scrub daddy? <laughs> scrub daddy. <laughs> it is... One of the best. It's got to come from an infomercial. It's it's insane, but it's one of the just the best things we we have one, and now we can't go back. It's this little yellow, uh, circular, very wiry kind of sponge, but it's made out of this material that when you put cold water on it, it stays really rough. And when you put hot water on it, it gets soft. So you can like choose the level of abrasiveness you want. Right. So that's pretty cool. Mm. But the reason it's called Scrub Daddy. Actually, it has script because it has. It's, because it's, got, it's got a face in it. It's got a face. It's like they've cut out like a mouth and two eyes, oh, right? Really? And if you look at the, if you look at the, <laughs> if you get the box and you look at the back of it, they show a person putting a spoon in its mouth, like to clean it, to clean this, which very unnecessary, but but hilarious what? though, right? Uh, it's oh, that's so just you, part wait, of wait, 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 wait. So you're saying it's not what just like a, it's, it's like a not face. just embossed face. You're saying it's part no, of the design. It's punched it all the way through, so it's like holes. It's a smiley face. But yeah, we can shove stuff. And honestly, I think the holes make it worse because then it like gets kind of yeah. It doesn't last as long, right? But it is hilarious, and it still lasts a long, long time. <laughs> and again, like we can't go back now because like because you got your scrub daddy. Because it's so good, and and when you want to, then you want to, you know, when you when you want to vary that level of abrasiveness, you just choose your water temp and you do it that way. And because I found also that like I still break things all the time, it's usually because it slips out of my hands. You know, because it's covered in soap. Um, but I used to break things by handling them more often. But it was yeah. because I was like scrubbing, you know. But with with the scrub daddy, your daddy does the scrubbing for you. Whenever you say <laughs> scrub daddy, I'm just imagining Mr. Clean, but with like leather straps and a wig or something. But I do. I feel uh, yeah. like they nailed it though because the. Because it's just like a cartoon smiley face, right? Like that's all it is. So the branding of like Scrub Daddy next to this just cartoon I mean, face. It's hard to forget. It works yeah. really well. So I want to anyway, normalize like that's sexy a, men as the selling point of dishware and, and dish, uh, you know. You mean like Mr. Clean? Yeah, but like, yeah. but you call him Mr. Clean's one thing. We call him Scrub Daddy is the whole Scrub Daddy should be a side brand of Mr. Yeah. Uh, of, you know, it's the after hours, hours Mr. Clean. After hours, <laughs> Mr. Clean, after dark. <laughs> uh, all right, now we got it. Before we get into questions, we also need to talk about Oreos. Yeah. Oh yeah, I have a. So let's got? let's let's hear. I have a life story. It's about pets. I'll be here quick because I know sometimes you know we all like our own pets more than other people do. Um, hmm. But uh, so I've got this ancient cat. She can't eat much stuff because she's got bad guts, so she has to eat this horrible, disgusting like vet food, right? So as a consequence, she just thinks she's starving to death mm-hmm. all the time food obsessed, right? I'm trying to switch her on some new food, which is a slow process. And I also feed her less to like make sure it stays, you know? So she's thinks she's starving to death a lot more than usual. Mm-hmm. So last night I'm getting ready to go to bed. I have to go downstairs to do something, come into the kitchen to turn off the lights. And there's this cat on the rug with an Oreo, just mm-hmm. fucking chomping away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So it's a good cat. So, so, so I saw this and I was like, what is happening? Because 
it's an Oreo, you know? Where did she get and an Oreo? So then I like, so I let her look at the, so I take it away, you know? And she's eating like half of a fucking Oreo, <laughs> uh, which is just hilarious <laughs> because cats are, what are you doing, you know? And also it's cocoa in there, although Oreos are mostly not food, so I wasn't too worried yeah. about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and no vomit this morning, so I guess, I guess, it's I guess good. this cat could eat Oreos, but I don't recommend trying it at home. <laughs> Uh, so I went to the counter and I was like, how did she get into this? And on the counter was a, you know, a packet of Oreos and she had managed to actually just like pull up. She didn't even like, she went to it. She managed to like pull up the fucking flap. She peeled she the peeled flap back, pulled, she peeled back the flap and got one out. out of the sleeve just to. Yeah. <laughs> and then just was like on the floor eating it. But then like I went, to, but then there was also a bag of chips on the floor that she had like oh. also knocked down and tried to get into, but was unsuccessful. And then also we had a bowl, we had a bowl, like a small bowl of peanuts on the counter. And a big bowl of grapes. And so as I was scanning, you know, scanning everything, mm-hmm. I looked over and I just noticed there were a whole bunch of fucking peanuts in the grapes. <laughs> and I was, I, I was like, okay, so that means she w- also went for the peanuts, but she was, somehow she was kitchen scavenging fucking like a- chaos. So I was trying to imagine like, what did this look like when she was like up here, like throwing peanuts around, yeah, and probably. <laughs> knocking things to the floor. I mean, she probably shoved fucking- a bunch. You know, she didn't have any molars, so I'm sure she got some peanuts in her mouth and then just like you know, went to go eat grapes and then just couldn't like, you know, you can't get more so, grapes yeah, in and there. grapes are like, grape skins are toxic, I'm pretty sure for cats and dogs, you know, so mm-hmm. like, but also she's a cat, an obligate carnivore. Yeah, I don't know what she's doing. And she's over here trying to eat peanuts and Oreos, you know, like, I don't know what's happening. Anyway, so that loves, that was, she loves bread though. She too. does like bread and cookies. So She's just, a, she's a carb yeah, when we had your cats for a couple of days, they tried yeah, to she got your bread. broke into the bread box and then ate the corners off the whole loaf, which was yeah. insane. That's what she was saying. I can't even <laughs> believe I'm describing those. Yeah. Eat the corners well, off the whole loaf. Does not make any sense? Yeah, we, we have found many, many a bread or cookie-like item, like on... At some point on the floor, because she got it off the counter or something. Um, but we, like, we never leave something unwrapped for this reason, you know. But she'll just like chew into the fucking plastic, you know. She's very much or like open a sleeve of Oreos, I guess. You know, brownie pan. I feel like she's like the edge of the brownie, is sort of a person. Yeah, not never the inside. But I think it's also like I think she likes the smell mm. or something because it's like it's not. I mean, they're carnivores. They don't even. Like, they can't even taste sugar, right? They don't have. A, they can't even taste sugar. Yeah. Like what the fuck? Wait, would what? It, what? Yeah, they don't have a. Uh, sugar. They don't have sweetness receptors. Because they don't need it because they're obligate carnivores. So can they just a, have to eat. Yeah. Can a cat even, what the fuck does an Oreo taste like to a cat? I don't know. I was thinking it's like, it's like, it's as if she was like a starving monster. Just like <laughs> bu- eating everything she could get her face into, you know? So well, there way. must be, they must have some kind of like fat, fat. Yeah, probably fat. Re- yeah, yeah. Receptors, oh, you know. I guess there's like, probably there's some fat in Oreos, right? Probably. I mean, there's got to be something in Oreos. Oreos are weird. Because yeah, Oreos, they're, they're <laughs> yeah, there's like. <laughs> yeah. If you ever hear somebody like, man, I switched to a vegan diet, but like, I feel like shit. It might be that they've literally just been eating Oreos <laughs> for yes. the past two they're weeks. They're vegan and they're also, uh, they don't have any gluten in them. They're the perfect snack. It's like almost no matter what your food yeah. stuff is, you can eat Oreos, but. But the question is, is that a flex or is it because it's not food? You know, and I don't know. That's true. Yeah. Which one of those two mm-hmm. it is? No, they are delicious. If, if Oreos aren't food, then what's the point of living? What's the point of living? <laughs> they sure have a lot of calories for not they being do. food. They do. They sure do. I'll say that. That's much. true. I guess, yeah, if it has calories, it is food, right? That's how. It's mostly sugar, probably. That's how it works. Uh, all right. Well, let's get, in, let's get into some questions. 
Uh, we got we got enough time to hit maybe even two <gasps> questions today. Oh, right. generous. Uh, yeah. So uh, let's get into it. These questions come from our listeners over at podcast.bsketch.net. Highest upvoted question comes from Fraser, who says, Once Crashlands 2 is finished, is there any genre you'd want to try next? Does the existence of the Game Changer tooling stack push things in any given direction? P.S. I'd love a B-Scotch roguelike. A bit to play it, but more to hear your take on the design challenges of the genre. Well, some good news. Mm-hmm. There is Quadrupus Rampage. There is one. Quadrupus Rampage. It's actually the second game we published. It's from 2013, so, you know. Beware no, tw- that. Yeah, 2013. Yeah, I think it also Things- has been played by more people than any of our other games, including Crash. Oh, yeah. It's free to play on mobile, so it's, uh, yeah. I think and still it's, and it was, and it was from launched time back when, when you could, you know, get people to play your games on mobile. Back when there were only a thousand games coming out a week on mobile yeah, instead of seven to ten thousand. <laughs> yeah. So we really snuck in when the market was hot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, there is. It didn't make it. It didn't make us a lot of money, but it got a lot of got a lot of plays. We that was the game that taught us we uh, don't, don't do have. Yeah, we don't have the. Uh, I don't know what you'd call it, but we don't really like making free-to-play games. <laughs> There's a certain expertise in being able to accept the monetization constraints of free-to-play and actually definitely apply them to a game's design because they're part of the, the monetization is the design. And well, it, yeah, it feels like it you're annoying. using – You're designing it, a store that happens to be a game. Yes. You know, yeah. Well, it's, it's you're using your your powers for an alt- alternative purpose, right? Because as a game designer, your whole job is learn learn all the different tricks of how people's brains make them feel good, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then and then you make a game to do that to make people feel good as they play the game, right? Uh, but then when you make a free to play game, now you say, how do we employ those tricks to make people feel good about spending give us, money. yeah, just give us as much money as possible. How do we just like continuously exploit all these little nooks and crannies and the mm-hmm. wrinkles of the brain to extract as much cash as possible. Yeah, never and we didn't like that. No, no. But it yeah, was, so the it's not fun. page does exist. It's a basically an undersea beat em up. You just beat, you're beating up fish. That's. That's it. That's sort of the whole the whole thing. Um, so if you do want to play that, it's it's a good time. It's a good time. It, hold, it holds up. It's fun. It is it's a rogue great. light, though. Your your progression from a given run does carry forward in yeah. certain yeah. ways into your future runs. Yeah, and I do personally love the roguelike genre. It's one of my favorite grouping of things. I think because of the fact that it, you can get away with so much in the design space there, because the since the game resets over time. Uh, as we've talked about a little bit in the past, you don't have to worry about uh, sort of scaling blowout issues. That's actually usually the point is allowing players to figure out how to or or get lucky by getting some things put together that make them just completely ridiculously powerful, which would be a huge problem if the game didn't end, right? And mm-hmm. then you replay. So I love that sort of content because it lets you be just a maniac, which is super Yeah, we were fun. talking a few weeks ago about how the problem with uh, power loop driven game design is that when the loop runs out or becomes naked and, and bare, right? Uh, that keeping keeping that balance so that things stay fun is already a challenge, like through a game play mm-hmm. session. But then at some point, like there's just nowhere higher to go. Um, and a, the roguelite's whole thing is basically saying, cool, once we get there, just stop. Just stop. Start over. And restart, make it cool. Start yeah. back at zero. Yeah, so I love those. Um, but yeah, as far as like what would happen or what we want to explore afterwards, I mean, Seth and I were actually just talking about uh, yesterday, I think, because the reality is the game changer is so 
ridiculously good uh, and has gotten so has sped up just so many aspects of, you know, just making complicated, interesting, again, like unique authored content at scale, which is the whole point of it. Um, that it does seem like it'd be a shame to me to just sort of, uh, we've talked in the past about possibly moving to uh, 3D or moving to Unreal or whatever else and, and all these things. And uh, even just being able to make even like a, just a spinoff of Crashlands, you know, that was had a slightly different angle, but we used a lot of the same base. Uh, like tech. a 3D angle? Well, yeah, no, not a 3D angle. Because I think that's the, yeah, if we, if we stick <laughs> in, the, in the, kind of just in this in this space that we've developed um, so intensely, it's almost like the thing I was talking about with, with Ragnarok, God of War, which is, you know, so much of the the initialization of, of a game is just getting the damn thing to work, figuring out how it works, getting it to work, and then building so many tools to support uh, content pipeline for that. And then, yeah, in most, most cases, you end up pivoting away from that genre or, or you know, trying something else entirely. And I really, my hope is that we can do at least one other thing kind of with the Crash Lens 2-esque game changer stuff we've built up, either like an adjacent game or something like that, um, that utilizes a lot of the same tech because it would be, we would get to go almost just straight into mm-hmm. the figuring out the fun part stuff uh, yeah, well, there's a few layers to the tech that are generic enough, right, yeah. that they don't, I mean, they still need to be used, like, in this engine context and so on, because that's where all the code is and all that. So it's not, like, transplantable into a 3D engine or something like that. But in terms of, like, what kinds of games we could make with it, that's, oh, not, that's not really a problem, right? No. There's Because there's a whole bunch of Crash and specific stuff, too, right? But but at the core, like, those, those tools are game agnostic. Uh, so, yeah, it would be... It would be a shame to not be able to like really leverage that from the beginning of yeah a next title, but that probably would be you know Crashlands three or something. But I think the other cool thing about that though is like or you know whatever whatever kind of an episode two you know whatever we want to do. Yeah, um, you can't make third games. It'll be Crashlands Crashlands two episode one. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That kind of thing, and then and then episode two, and then and then we'll probably be done for about twenty years, or, I think. Pull it, and then yeah. don't starve and just call it Crashlands together, and then mm-hmm. it make only if it's multiplayer, though. Yeah. But I guess the other, the other thing though is that if we do something like that, because the problem is always when you're making a new kind of game or switching to a new engine or having to throw a lot of your tech away or whatever, is that you again like. All of your all of your constraints are back, all of them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't get to create any kind of slack anywhere, right? So, like right now, like like at least the, for the first part of development of Crashlands uh, two, basically up until now, um, Sam had tons of slack. He could mm-hmm. go learn more stuff. He could try new art approaches. He could develop new pipelines. Like there's all kinds of stuff that he could do to push basically his discipline and knowledge really far forward because. Seth's over here, like, building up the tools. And, like, there's nothing that Sam can do in the game yet and that kind of thing, right? And I think similarly, if Crashlands 3 is built largely with the tech that we have now already have, mm-hmm. um, because the tech enables very a wider, a diverse array of kinds of content without requiring a lot of code changes, then that suddenly Seth has Slack for that development cycle, where now he can push something forward right or a bunch of things forward and we can get new kinds of text that's where we could you know re-explore multiplayer again we could like, mm-hmm. try other kinds of things um and stop being stuck in this like this either fully synchronous thing where just nobody's got slack um or right. where seth in particular has basically never had slack right <laughs> and over the past few weeks he's actually had these like brief, brief moments because like sam and jenny are running ahead and like working on stuff well because they've got enough tools now that they can just keep on doing content. Um, 
where like the pressure is dramatically relieved in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But still, there's like a, this infinite list of like the stuff we already know has to happen before the game changer and the game or our engine complete. Um, so being able to not have that Start for there. a game for a game dev cycle would yeah. be it would be cool. So I think that's that's what I would be advocating for post crash lens too would be 100%. would be some kind of a sequel-ish kind of thing just yeah, like leveraging the shit out of all the tech that we've already made yeah yeah i'd really like to try a multiplayer thing i think in particular um whether it's a whether it's roguelike or just a again a crafting and kind of survival game or whatever else um but focus let the programming side focus on those just stupidly huge problems um, and we'll figure out the rest using the fact that we have sort of conceptually locked in a bunch of these things that previously were very hard to know how to uh, describe with data uh, which now we kind of have. Yeah, well, when I mean, we, we had talked about doing multiplayer in Crash Nets 2 originally, but what we kind of learned over the course of working on that was that was that for starters, the design of the game was ambitious enough that can't do both. We were gonna have to, we were gonna have to develop so much new tech yeah. mm-hmm. to be able to execute even a single player version of the game that trying to do that with multiplayer mixed in yeah, was just too big. It was just gonna it was gonna double our production time at least. Um, and who knows if we would have actually made a good game, yeah. you know, at the end of it, because we were also running into all these design problems of, you know, Crashlands, um, I think was fairly unique for its time because of how, of how, uh, tightly it pushed on, on narrative and like open world crafting mm-hmm. games. Right. Cause you, you, you didn't really have that as a, like a dual concept. Um, and also that it, it looked and felt like a survival game, but it was actually an RPG, mm-hmm. right? Because like there was no permadeath, there was no starvation or anything like that. You know, your your character is fine, and you're you're just moving through the world and powering up like you do in in an RPG, like a Final Fantasy kind of a game or something like that, right? And so so if we wanted to carry over what we thought were kind of like the best parts of Crashlands, which is like this um, this open world, but narrative driven, you know, crafting, blah, blah, blah. Um, then trying to figure out how to reconcile all of those things in a multiplayer context, we, we were just bumping into that so many times of like, okay, wh- what about quests? Yeah. It's like, really narrative. Mm-hmm. Narrative in a multiplayer context is very yeah challenging yeah. to figure out. And given out. that we have quests that like change the world, right? Like oh, yeah. a, a quest happens and like some new, or, or like what if a quest requires a player to get an item? The player gets the item and then they log out of the server yeah. and they were they were the one with the quest item, right? Mm-hmm. And so you've got to do all kinds of weird workarounds to figure out how to make it so that like things can still progress or like what if somebody logs out and then they come back into the server and then a bunch of quests have progressed because other people played? Like are they just behind now or like what if they were in a place that no longer exists because maybe a quest caused it to stop existing you know there's just there's just what happens when a new player comes because it's it's also a progression based game right that's that's meant to be like a dozens of hour gameplay experience things move forwards right so what if you invite your buddy to come play with you and they've never played before right and so they hop into your game what does their onboarding look like, <laughs> right? What is their – do they just get equipment? I think, do they just get hand-me-downs, you know, from their person just like jump way ahead and just start, and then just have the other player teach them? Or do we try to like have that BR problem? Yeah. The, just the sheer number of like design challenges to really marrying the, those two things together was – Yeah. Well, if, you, if, you can, if you're allowed to simplify the concept of the game 
within sort of move the narrative pillar out um, either completely or or almost completely, then it makes a lot of these things far easier to think about. But then that to us was like, that doesn't fit what crap. If I bought Crashlands and I loved it and then I bought, and it was Crashlands 2, but there's literally no narrative arc in it whatsoever. That seems, yeah. and no quests. No yeah, probably quests. the way it would have had to have been. And we had, like, we, we had some pretty cool like design ideas, but still most of it was just big question marks. We were like, oh, I guess we'll figure this out later, you know? Yeah. yeah. But I think the only way that it really could have worked and still have been like a meaningful successor to Crashlands that was the same kind of game was if like there was like, it was still a single player game that you could invite people to play and they just like appear wherever you are or something. Right. And we don't do it. Like the, that player can give you some stuff if they want to or whatever, but we don't like reset anything. We don't like give them a different experience going through. Um, might even force it same screen. So we don't have to deal with like, Oh, what happens if people are changing the world in multiple spots. But like if we constrained it enough, um, we could actually potentially do it. But then you have to ask the question, but after all those constraints, yeah, is it good? Is the fact that multiplayer is yeah. good? It's like, well, but also from not. a business perspective, <laughs> it's it creates new challenges, right? Because being a cross-platform studio is a very intentional uh, business security choice that we've made, which is that Crashlands 2 right now can play on any of the devices that we've been on before. Um, and it's uh, just a, a one step away from being able to play on more devices. Yeah. Like it's we've we've designed all of the controls and everything so that we can we can easily adapt it or yeah. migrate it to whatever. Yeah, and that, that was an intentional choice because our survival as a company hinges on basically riding the waves of chaos of the games industry. Right? Like who's who's making the who's who's doing the most for indies right now? Is it Xbox? Is it PlayStation? Is it Apple? Is it you know who is it? Right? Um, and we need to be able to to catch whatever wave, you know, is, is currently cresting. And we can only do that if we're adaptable enough to move. That's one of the things that we actually realized about our current web tech, which isn't even close to the complexity of multiplayer. It's just, just very simple web stuff is that while that's actually pretty straightforward for us to maintain and keep working for ourselves, if another platform has a requirement, like, Oh, you have to use our tech to like sync saves or whatever. Or if they don't want if they want it to be an exclusive and don't want something else, if they want a separate player pool or whatever it is that they want to have us do, right, then it actually hurts us to have that thing because yeah, it makes our lives more complicated. It makes things more difficult because it actually becomes less, despite actually being more portable, you know, because you can play it anywhere and it's the same and you can like sync your saves and stuff. It actually becomes less portable from a business standpoint. Um, and I think multiplayer is that problem times like a thousand because. Mm-hmm the technical challenges involved with that are so much higher. And then yeah. the constraints that are put on you from the platforms is also a lot higher. Yeah. Yep. And, and of course there's a problem of, of a multiplayer game. If it's, if it's entirely multiplayer, then, you know, it lives and dies by its player base because of yep. the network effect. Right. So like as, as soon as people s- start getting tired of the game and leaving, then the incentive for other people to leave goes up and then you have this sort of negative feedback loop. And so, you know, you want to, you want to try to make your game so that it can be played without other players and it's fine. But then at that point, 
maybe don't even worry about the multiplayer side. <laughs> just yeah. make a really good single yeah. player game. So it's all know? very tricky. It's all very tricky. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, in terms of genre, the game changer doesn't actually demand anything. Mm-hmm. Um, like we could we could make a card game the next game. The game changer would be awesome for that, actually. And I love me some um, roguelike deck builders. So, you know, sign yeah. me up. Um, yeah, we could make, make a roguelike. We could make a platformer. We could make a sim. I mean, we could do anything. But yeah, something that we also kind of learned, um, and like we kind of talked about this, I think it was last week, about the the problem of like, of indies basically making a game that people really like and then getting bored of that concept and then just going and making something totally different, right? And that's, you know, your audience won't come with you to yep. the next thing yep. if it's too different from the, the prior thing. Audience Unless you've got genre. such a strong, such a strong IP, that a significant fraction, still not most, not even close, but a significant fraction will. So you take like a Hearthstone, right, where it's like, oh, all of the Blizzard IP, right? Uh, or if you take this like Marvel Snap game that everybody on mobile is playing, right? It's like, yeah, sure. You can just stick Marvel on anything and a whole bunch of people will give it a shot, right? Uh, and that's something we realize is that one of the things that we have to try to do is sort of take advantage of the fact that people like Crashlands by making more Crashlands stuff, right? And if we're lucky someday... Having done that enough, we'll have enough IP power, you know, mm-hmm. that we can take more gambles on stuff that's adjacent to it, or like different genres or whatever, but using the same IP so that people mm-hmm. will still come give it a shot yeah. because they love those characters, they love those stories, and they want to see them. And they're like, they like them enough that they'll be like, okay, I'll take a risk on this thing that I normally. Yeah, well, I think that's the, that's the trick. Like, here's the thing I, I haven't played Overwatch. If Overwatch was a StarCraft first person shooter Ooh, i would yeah. pick that shit oh, yeah, up instantly yep instantly yeah. right because like i don't i don't know about all, like this like giant gorilla dude and like a robot person and like some girl in a mech suit i don't know who these people are i don't care right mm-hmm. yeah, they look like, really I cool from the outside but yeah but you don't know them yeah. they look cool but they they they're in a bubble you know and and uh i I do play first person shooters from time to time but not really much and i need i need a good reason right and so, like, if I see something that kind of looks like a reskinned Team Fortress 2, which is basically how I feel about, you know, a game like Overwatch, like a class-based shooter, right? Mm-hmm. Then, like, I need something extra. And if I can be a Zerg, you know, oh, yeah. if I can, if I can be a, 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 a Protoss uh, zealot with my, my psionic blades, you mm-hmm. know, instead of just some guy with a knife or whatever is in Overwatch, (laughs) then like, yeah, I'm all on board. And so, so that's where I think a lot of the, you know, jumping of genres can really happen is if, if you've got a strong enough IP that you can just bring that with you. And so that's Mm -hmm. where like, uh, cause with the, the Warcraft universe, you know, it was Warcraft as an RTS for three games and then as an MMO for a long time. And now as this card game. Right. And so, uh, and each of those games kind of builds on the, the universe and the characters and, and it makes the entry point so much easier. Cause like, I also did pick up and, and try Hearthstone. Right. Yeah, did um, you've seen those, and, you know, those characters you want to see what the, what they're doing in this context, right. Mm-hmm. Or what the feel is in this context. And, yeah. And like, I heard good things about it and, and, uh, you know, it has a lot of that same kind of like weirdly like whimsical kind of vibe that Warcraft kind of has, you know, and very colorful and stuff like that. And so, yeah, like I tried it out. Um, but yeah, you can't just, you can't just make something totally different that has no recognizable characters, totally different genre and expect people to just kind of like blindly dive into it. 
you know. Yeah, I mean, I would love so, to make a, a Crashlands roguelike of some sort. I don't know what the fuck that even means, but that's a fun combination of words. Yeah, Crashlands dungeons, you know, mm-hmm. whatever the fuck that is. But you're just dungeon diving mm-hmm. as and and and, and that's also the fun part too. Is like when you do take like if you do have a strong enough IP that you can make that leap. That also gives the opportunity to highlight other stuff in a way that's more yeah. uh, acceptable to people. Because that way, because like take we were talking about Quadrupus Rampage, right? That character, that tech, the mm-hmm. the Quadrupus that you play as. Um, there's so we have a whole like lore that comes in there with like the Quadrupi and like this war that they fought, right? All on the same planet as Crash. It's like we're already trying to kind of pull the IP together, but it's, like, it's just with different characters each time, and the context mm-hmm. is too different. But in Crash in, in OG Crashlands, like you come across the quadrupi as a mm-hmm. kind of npc pretty early in the game they're actually they're a core part of it right and so of course if you haven't played quadrupus rampage which most of our crashlands players hadn't because they're just two different of games yeah um then you'd be like oh fuck yeah the quadrupi right because like you just you just lo- you love seeing that character that you enjoyed you know being involved with um again right and so yeah for crashlands 2 we're doing that with crashlands 1 where we're trying to so we're taking the same like you know species of npc and we're taking a few of the characters or at least things related to characters and pulling those forward so that as a Crashlands player, you can be like, oh yeah, it's that, like, it's this, I, I remember that story, you know, and you get to have that experience. But it's still kind of hard in those contexts to like, like with a game like Crashlands to be like, I want you to really like one of these quadrupi, right? Because like, we could try to tell, like, we could try to like mesh the stories in enough that like, you feel like you really know them, right? So we could have a spinoff with that quadrupi. But if you haven't played as them, you know, mm-hmm. it's not the same. But if you go like, yeah, if you hop into a rogue or like a roguelike though, and you can like choose like Flux, mm-hmm. which you know yeah. who's the main character in Crashlands, or choose Tech, the Quadrupus, or choose, or whatever. Right? But now it's all in the same universe, and you get to actually like experience stories as those characters. Then that makes it easier to jump into even more tangential things and like and, and actually broaden out the IP. Yeah, so, and, and that was we actually had a kind of a, a prototype version of a game like this. Um, and it's something we were working on after Crashlands that we ended up not making. I think we were, we worked on it for maybe like um, two months or something. A narwhal. Um, no, it was like it was uh, the Home Slice or yeah, or, it had a code name. Yeah, yeah, it's Home something Slice. Like it's basically Quadrupus Two. Yeah, so we had like the we had the Polari from Crashlands. We had Quadrupus, and we had like uh, the Shalook, which is like a clam people. <laughs> yep, and Blood Bars, which are like walrus people. And it was it was essentially it was like taking place in the oceans of Woe Nope after the events of, of Crashlands. Um, and it was, it was intended to be like a, a cl- like a class-based kind of multiplayer sort of roguelike, you know, kind of brawler thing. Um, but yeah, we, I think, I think similar to what we ran into with Crashlands 2, we, we had to design in so many things in terms of the game and the tech that we just kept running into these, into these kind of, insurmountable things that were just been, would have been too expensive for us yeah. to put together. Mm-hmm. Our so. eyes were too big for our, uh, our technical mm-hmm. skills yeah. and stuff we'd already made. Well, and, and like there were, there were things in, in, you know, in crashes we're like, oh, that was so great to have. Like, it was so great to have, uh, you know, fishing and farming and like building a base. And like, we want, we want to make this multiplayer rogue, like also have all of that stuff too. You know? mm-hmm. And so it was, it was one of the, it's just like feature, feature creep, the game. Um, and it just ended up being 
I think I think it like it played pretty well. Oh, moment to moment was fine. Yeah, moment to moment's always fine. That's easy. Yeah, but production was just very fraught. Yeah. So, uh, all right, well, we have time for one last uh, yeah, brief brief question from Mimabif Gorky, who says, "What advice would you give to a developer who wants to start doing QA?" Ooh, it was funny. I actually talked to a um, studio head a few months ago who had just launched a game, and they did. This is a very big game. That went on to uh, Apple Arcade, and they had farmed out their QA, kind of similar to how we had started with it, right? Hired one of these external QA companies and done that. Um, and yet, at the launch, they had run into just a huge number of issues that they were like, "What? I thought we were paid for QA." You know, um, I will say well, that's that true. They did pay for QA. They certainly paid for. It. <laughs> um, doing it in house uh, still has been one of the smartest, I think, overall studio moves we've made in terms of fully integrating that chain of stuff. And, and Jordan, who heads up our, our QA stuff, and then all of our uh, part-timers who do the kind of playtesting have been phenomenal in terms of like just having a set of people who we actually kind of build the skills into and stuff like that has been just really ridiculously good in terms of uh, actually ensuring quality, you know, again, not, not just paying for quality assurance, but ensuring quality. Um, um, so yeah, it's, I would say if you're getting trying to get started on it, um, it starts as basically as simply as figuring out actually first how to more regularly get builds out and deployed. Because mm-hmm. if you can't do that, then there's not really a point of having QA yet because you can't even get routine builds out. Um, there's nothing to test. Yeah. And then it's like getting some kind of patch notes put together. You do those two things and then you're ready for someone at some point to play the thing and, and get yeah, you yeah, your ability, Yeah. Your ability to test is so contingent on your pipelines. Because because you're adding a lot of communication channels. Yes, like Sam was saying, you, you've got to do, you got to deliver builds, and you need to deliver builds regularly enough that they can be tested. Because if you do it, well, we, when we first started QA, we did it once a week because mm-hmm. everything was manual, which meant that uh, our testers would just come in. They were they're part time. They would just come in on Friday mm-hmm. for like three or four, four hours percent. per person, um, and and they would have an entire week worth of patch notes. So just pages and pages of things that have changed in the game. And they also were, were testing infrequently enough that, you know, a week has gone by since they last did this stuff. And so it's easy to kind of like forget how to do this thing or forget how to get into the game or, you know, whatever. And so um, we found that that we still got some pretty good stuff at that time, but our mm-hmm. processes were were just – they're just janky. working, working against us, you know. And so, uh, yeah. So then we we automated our builds, we automated our patch notes, um, and made it so that so that we were able to just get a build out. You know, I think I think especially during the level head days, we were doing like sometimes four builds a day. Mm-hmm. You know, and we would have QA in there, and then we would just like deploy it, and then we just kind of yell over like new builds coming, right? <laughs> and then five minutes later, they they it update and they're good to go. But then the other the other part of it is the problem of of intake. So yes. if the if your QA team finds something, how do they get you that information? Uh, how is that information uh, screened and and how, like how do you make sure that you're getting what you need? And so we've gone through several iterations of that as well. Where at the beginning it was it was almost like a if you see something say something kind mm-hmm. of thing. And the problem there is like everybody has different understanding and ideas of what matters at any given point in development, um, different standards for like whether something feels right or wrong, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And the content itself is shifting in completion over time. So, you know, you're not necessarily you know, want feedback. You might be able to get voluminous feedback from people about like your build mode system, 
but it's literally currently being built. And so you're like, I don't need anybody to say anything. I know it's broken. I've delivered yeah. it broken. You know what I mean? Like it's not finished yeah. yet. And so, so we've, we've come up with a bunch of, of techniques, but I think the, the two that have helped us the most to get really good feedback um, is one is the idea of reporting thresholds where we basically came up with several kind of degrees of severity. And we say like, okay, uh, you know, a critical bug is one that causes a crash or causes data loss, right? And then the next level is, is uh, you know, it's just like a, what we just call a bug, which is something isn't working the way that you would think that it would, right? But it's not like breaking the game for you necessarily, but it's just not a very good experience, right? Um, and then the, the, then the lowest level is just polish, where you like, you see, you see something you're like, oh man, like this, the border on this button is slightly offset compared to the other buttons, you know, that kind of thing. And so at different stages of development, you can say to your QA team, like, okay, because, you know, work, because we're working on this system and it's highly in flux, we're just going to stay at the critical level. So if you see anything that's crashing or causing you to lose data, let us know about that because we shouldn't be deploying stuff that has that problem, right? <laughs> but everything else is just really fluid right now. But so I think that's the worry about most that. important ideas, as you're saying, is being able to ahead of time have explicit and, and, and frequently, you know, touching back on the questions of how do things get categorized for action? Um, because yeah. all of the, all of like the also interpersonal conflict about like, oh, this person doesn't care about the stuff I'm reporting or, you know, like, like all of, all of that stuff basically comes from a mismatch in uh, what people think matters, right? Yeah. Expectations. And, the needs basically. Yeah, and those all just need to be as clear as possible so that people don't feel like they're, you know, shouting into the void on the one hand. Was this question about becoming a QA or about adding QA? Adding QA. Adding QA. Well, it's it's unclear. Okay. It's a little but it says, what advice would you give to a developer who wants to start doing QA? Which I assume that they're developing their game. Doing QA. They want yeah, to, getting QA done. They want to start doing QA on their If project. you want to become a QA tester, that's a whole other, that's a whole other question, that, which yeah. we won't have time to get yeah, into. So if that's your question, just ask it again. We'll just ask it that. again and we'll talk about that. Uh, uh, but um, the other thing, though, that I was going to say yeah. as like the second part. So the first thing is reporting thresholds and making sure that you're dictating what kinds of feedback um, that you get. The other part is making sure that the feedback that you do get is actionable. So mm -hmm. at the beginning and for, for a long time, we just had our QA uh, basically just re just reporting directly to developer, to me. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so Seth would read yeah. all tickets from QA, basically. Yeah, I would just read them and triage, uh, categorize. And, yeah, and we had, we had you know, guidelines of like, here's how you report a bug. You know, you need these replications. You need to include replication steps. You need to talk about what platform you saw. You know, it's just, it's a list of all of the things that the developer would need to track down the bug, right? Problem is, uh, and I mean, we find this with almost anything, it's very hard for any person to to understand or tell what other people know or don't know. Yes. So if you're a QA tester, you're like, I found this bug and you're describing something and then you send that to the developer, you may have described it in a way that makes sense to you, but that the developer's like, I, I don't know what you're talking about, yes. <laughs> right? And so we Which actually- Which is why in-house QA is so important because over time, you everybody builds a shared understanding. Yes, yeah. that yeah. helps so much, yeah. But then the, sec the second thing we did was- we added in an, an additional step, which is that another QA tester needs to replicate a report before it goes to a developer. Mm -hmm. And what, what that ended up doing was it, it made it so that our QA testers end up collaborating with each other, right? Because mm -hmm. one of them will find a bug and be like, I found this thing. 
they'll describe it, and then another one comes in and they try to replicate it, and they'll be like, I, I tried to replicate this and I couldn't figure it out. And then they start to talk, and then they put together a much more detailed, comprehensive report, and then that goes to the developer, and yeah. then we can fix the bug in five minutes instead of spending an hour trying to figure it out. I think right. it's a really interesting example of sort of, you know, we talk a lot about in, in the DevOps process, communication being essentially the key for, for all this stuff, visibility being key for all this stuff. And what's interesting, I think, in that particular case you're describing is that you talk about basically getting the defects in the tickets of the yeah. QA system, but instead of trying to solve it by, because uh, what you want to do is not not have that uh, basically defective ticket, a ticket that's not operable, arrive at, like, at the other end of the pipeline. Yeah, you don't want to throw well, the pig over the wall. You know, in the, yeah, in yeah the, but what you do is then is, is actually just to essentially fake delivery within the same part of the pipeline before it would go to the next stage. So you fake deliver it by giving it to another QA person first. Well, what you're doing is you're testing the ticket. You're testing the ticket. Yep. To see if it to see if the ticket is working as intended, yep. right? So you use QA on to QA. do QA on QA <laughs> before the ticket goes back to the developer. It's testing all the way down once you get yeah. into it. I think there are, there are two yeah. other, I think, core concepts that matter a lot for mm -hmm. QA. And I think the most important one is the shift left philosophy, which there's like all kinds of like, it's kind of like agile where there's like specific agile methodologies for managing work, right? And like shift left, like I'm pretty sure there's like a thing that somebody constructed that's called that. But the premise is basically like we draw workflows from left to right. That's also mm -hmm. like, right. So, um, so the shift left idea is the idea of like pushing things upstream. Um, mm, nice. Right. And so shifting left, you, say, you basically say, well, why do we have to, why do we have bugs? Because QA's job is to ensure quality of the thing that they get. Right. Yep. What's the best way to ensure the quality? Right, is to not have any bugs in the first place. Right, <laughs> just stop coding bugs. Just stop coding bugs. Just don't, now, just don't obviously just don't put them in there. Obviously, that's like a truism, and like you know, and like you can't just stop making bugs, right? But the the whole point of that philosophy is to say, don't make the bugs just other people's problem, right? Yeah, every time, bugs. every time an issue does appear and gets caught downstream, there should be a feedback loop that tries to address the root cause of that upstream, mm -hmm. so that. So that whole classes of kinds of problems become less and less likely to happen over time, right? And so that goes into basically now coding and design practices and what collaboration looks like upstream, including the, the aspect of, of being making things that actually are testable, right? And where mm -hmm. QA downstream can get the information that they need and they have the tools they need to accurately and quickly diagnose issues and get them back, kicked back upstream again, right? So, because if you basically just say like, oh, we're just doing our stuff and QA's job is just to keep reporting issues and that's the whole thing, then that never gets better, you know? Because you're just still sending a huge volume of shit downstream and QA's just doing their best. But they're going to get overwhelmed no matter how good they are yeah. if they don't have and then good you're, enough tools. And then you're going to get overwhelmed yeah, with all their reports. Exactly. And, and then, because yeah. this is also, again, where like all the interpersonal conflicts come in between like QA mm -hmm. departments and dev and design is... The idea that like QA is constantly just getting overwhelmed by just the sheer shittiness of stuff coming from upstream and then being blamed for missing stuff, right? Yep. But also simultaneously being blamed for reporting stuff that is a problem because the developers and designers upstream don't want to hear about it basically, right? Or They want to make new features. They want to make new features. And so yeah. <laughs> the best way to avoid these conflicts are with, again, that explicit upfront triage categorization with QA given the power to do the triaging at that level with the collaborative aspects that you just keep on. So QA can really 
kick good stuff upstream. But then otherwise, that that upstream has part of its actual set of goals is to make QA easier and easier over time so that there's a communication, a feedback loop the whole time. And so you know, this is stuff where like logging utilities, right? Um, so that... Uh, and, and so that people can capture information from the game, you know, even just s- stupid, s- seemingly obvious things like, oh, like your QA team should have the ability to record their screen, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that they can share a video demonstrating the thing, because that's a lot easier a lot of times than trying to describe it, right? Um, and it should be easy for them to do that, because if it takes them half an hour to put a video together, right? Mm-hmm. That's dumb. They're not going to do it. Yeah, I think the you problem know? really is that people tend to think about quality assurance as the end of the pipeline, where really it's like it's part of the loop. If you're, yeah, if you, it's part of the loop, and if you're looking at any team, any particular person on a on a team's role uh, is never isolated into just whatever the little pieces where they do the specific work that they are able to do, but they're supposed to be applying those skills to uh, basically inform the rest of the pipeline to make both their work and everybody else's work better. So when we talk about quality assurance, it's not quality assurance of the end product, it's quality assurance of the process by which you make products and and the end product. I think until you put those together, then people are always giving quality assurance people to boot and treating it like a separate annoying thing that they have to get past in order to like get a broke ass game out the door. Look at Pokemon. What in the hell? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just what broke as fuck that cannot be an know, integrated pipeline know, there's no way there's no way that's like a well functioning situation over there as far as QA is concerned no way yeah and yeah enough people are hitting are hitting the bugs in that game that they don't they don't seem like edge cases no they're they not. seem like they seem like that's just, just how the game is <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. well so I, I mean you see this too because like because especially with how shitty our industry is at like actual having good processes since they rely on crunch and other things instead of instead of more careful process management um and at the same time they treat qa as Seth said like the end product right or the thing you do last right and because of that they basically are building bugs on top of bugs on top of bad design choices on top of right that isn't getting feedback to be fixed early when it's easy Right or to address systemic problems early so they don't become really widespread, and so then all of a sudden you have just a broke as fuck thing that has mm-hmm. to get resolved, and now you're guaranteed you're going to drown QA, and now you're also guaranteed that the dev team is going to hate getting those tickets, yeah. right? Because there's so many of them, they're supposed to be done, they're all tired, etc. Right? Mm-hmm. But if you take the constant QAing all the time, the whole time. During all of development, because we started doing QA on Crashlands too, like a month in, two yeah. months in, something like that. Once there was enough stuff that a game existed at all, we were already doing QA because that allowed us to fine tune how the, the whole pipeline works yeah. the whole time. So that like now what we have is just this really slick, really nice process where like the feedback that we get from QA is just fucking top notch because they've been doing it for a long time you know i think it's this idea that like you should only test a thing when it's ready because otherwise it's a waste of time right it's again this like confusion about what work actually is yeah which is yeah i think it's just optimistic about like your ability to initialize a process effectively yeah and just like have it be good somehow yeah it's not yeah it's not the case like once you start testing that you're actually doing anything aside from actually just figuring out how to test and i think that's yeah where the breakdown happens right yeah, well, but I think yeah, I think the other part of it is that is that people can't stop treating P 
people's work as if they are robots who have like a specific constrained job and like they, they do it and then that's the end of the picture, right? Mm -hmm. Because the reality of work is that we're people who have to communicate with each other and work with each other's like different brains and skill sets and knowledge. And we all have to like work to also learn more stuff over time. And they were all working in some kind of a shared ever changing context that all of us have a piece of, but not the whole thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And for two people on any part of a work pipeline to successfully accomplish some piece of work together, whatever that is, it can't just be like, Oh, cool. Look, here's all this work I made. Yeah. It's your problem now, right? It, it has to be <laughs> from the outset, like, here's how we work together. And that has to be designed, right? And that has to be tested. And that has to be constantly modified over time. Because like the way that I like to think about it is that we we make things incidentally, right? Like as in like we're, our, our job as a studio is not to make Crashlands 2 or to make games even. Our job is to create and manage and develop a team, that is capable of doing that mm -hmm. because then as a side effect, you end up with games, you know, but you end up with whatever you end up with whatever. And, the, and that's the cool thing is like, as we've been working on stuff, we, we see these things where it's like, Oh yeah, if we needed to like do a pivot because like, you know, games are going under or whatever, we could already see a path where we could kind of like convert this whole team into like, Oh, now we're making web apps or whatever the fuck. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, because we are very aware we're not just building widgets and like people aren't just interchangeable independent parts that you just like, swap in and out. You just say, here's this piece of work. Now it's your job to do the next part. But the whole thing is just a constant, uh, you know, looping network. Um, mm -hmm. And anytime you don't design that and work on that, you're going to have a bad, everybody's going to have a bad time. You're going to have a worse product at the end of it. Yeah. So all that is to say, I think if you're making your game, you're, you're wanting to start doing some QA tests. Start early. Start early and just start in the simplest way that you can, because the most important thing is getting the loop started. Yeah, so you can iterate on it. So you can iterate on it and just and just don't ever think, hey, we have we have QA now, we're good to go, right? E everything is an iterative process. You need to be continually monitoring, are we getting the feedback we need? Is our QA getting what they need? Are we producing a lot of bugs unnecessarily? Why? You know? Um, yep. And just, just start working on that loop. And, uh, and remember and that games are hard to result. test because they're they're experiential and they're they're combinatorially complex often, right? And as the game grows over time, so does the complexity of testing it. And so if you're not also making tools and practices and your QA team or, or even yourself as you know, performing as QA, if you're not continuing to work on those processes and tools so that that becomes also easier over time, then you're going to overwhelm your QA. That's, that is just what's going to happen. And so that's why it's best to start really, really early so that everything is co-evolving as it goes. And that also means that you can't treat QA as like, testing is their problem. My problem is creating or whatever, right? It has to be everyone's problem. Yeah, it has to be everyone's problem. So that if QA comes to you, they say, hey, it's really time consuming to like test this questing system because I just have to start at the beginning every time, right? Then your response shouldn't be, okay, I guess we'll just throw more hours at it then, right? It should be, how do I make... Questing easier to test, right? Yeah, and I'm 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 particularly proud because I've gotten numerous comments from our QA people that testing Crashlands Two is heavenly compared to <laughs> testing the original Crashlands because yeah. because anytime we make new features, we add QA to test support, testing dashboard, not just for QA but for ourselves. Yeah, because right? so that's part like, two. Yeah, well, it's like anything reality. that's good for your, the developer, or sorry, anything that's good for QA is also good for development. Yes. It's 
Increasing yeah. quality. That's who yeah. doesn't want that. If we just say, how do we make it easy for our QA team to just jump from quest to quest to know everything about all the quests? How do we how do we let them just get an item? How do mm-hmm. we let them just, you know, do teleport to anywhere in the in the world? How do we do any of that stuff? If we make it easy for them, it's easy for us. And then it's easy to develop more stuff in, in the game, right? So everybody wins. None of it is a waste of time. Nope. In fact, it's a waste of time not to do those things. <laughs> so, really- uh, and that's all the time we have for this week. Uh, we'd like to thank our producers, Fat Bard and Sampa DaCosta, for putting the podcast together. And thanks to our community moderators who keep our Discord running. To get more involved in the Butterscotch community, just go to podcast.bscotch.net, where we have links to the Discord, a way for you to donate, and links to the archives. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.